Hello everyone and welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. Today our guest is Josie Kishi who will be telling us what excites her about molecular programming now and in the future. Also with me today is Anastasia. Hello. And I'm Will. Josie got her BS in Computer Science at Caltech and her PhD at Harvard where she was advised by Peng Yin. During her PhD she developed the Primer Exchange Reaction Method or PER or PER, as well as being able to perform logic and record temporal molecular events, she has developed the related SABER method for multiplex tissue imaging. Josie is now a technology development fellow at the Wies Institute. Josie, hi. Hey, thank you both for having me today. Thanks for coming. For those who are new to PER, could you tell us a little bit about it and how it works? Yeah, definitely. So PER, P-E-R, stands for Primer Exchange Reaction. Uh, so it's basic, a very basic kind of mechanism for synthesizing uh, DNA sequences. So you might have heard of toehold exchange reactions, where roughly speaking, you're able to kind of swap these short toehold domains, maybe uh, you know seven to ten nucleotides for one another via strand displacement. Uh, in this case, the primer exchange reaction allows us to uh, basically, given a specific sequence domain, let's say maybe nine nucleotides on the three prime end of a strand we can add another specific nucleotide domain to that. So let's say we have a sequence X, we want to add a sequence Y to it, only if it ends in X. That's kind of the logic we follow. So we can sort of cascade these reactions together to assemble these longer and longer sequences of DNA. Um, And we achieve this by combining principles of uh, strand displacement, toeholds, and using a polymerase enzyme. And, And then how does that lead into SABER? Yeah, so um, in general, PER is a very general mechanism for kind of dynamically assembling these strands, uh, these sequences. Um, So we've used them for a lot of different aspects. So we can make this synthesis conditional, um, for example, on the presence of specific signal strands. So in this way, we can uh, program logic. We can also make it uh, sort of program and record temporal interactions. So if different signal strands Uh, are present in different orders or different times, we can record that into the sequence. Uh, And then we can also use it as kind of a more general technique for synthesizing long uh, repetitive sequences that we call concatamers. So we can repeatedly append the same sequence domain. For example, sequence X, it could end up starting with one copy of X and you can end up with a whole long concatamer of X, 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 X. Um, And what, what we use that for actually for imaging is for signal amplification. So uh, so there are a number of methods that allow you to visualize where DNA, RNA, and protein molecules are in biological samples, so either fixed cell samples or fixed tissue samples. Uh, and what we can do is attach these long repetitive sequences uh, to nucleic acids that are localized, for example, to specific RNA molecules. And then using these repetitive sequences, we can use a complement, so X star, for example, that has a fluorophore on it that localizes to the X sequence. And because we have so many sites of X, we can localize many, many fluorescent strands uh, to each uh, individual concatamer. So in this way, we kind of local, localize and amplify the fluorescent signal uh, at, in specific locations in the cell or tissue. Uh, so you mentioned that with PR and like in your initial manuscript, uh, you implemented some logic functions as well. Have you pursued that further from a theoretical perspective or potentially for integrating with Saber and imaging for maybe more complex uh, type multiplexing or calculations of different biomarker combinations or anything along those lines? Yeah, definitely. So kind of all of the above. Um, I think 
you know, I, I, uh, I should mention Tom Schaus, my colleague, actually before PER developed a reaction called autocycling proximity recording. Um, so in this method, he localizes um, these special hairpin molecules to, for example, two proteins that might be nearby each other. And using a related kind of synthesis reaction, he's able to develop these proximity records that say what specific individual single molecules are next to what other specific individual single molecules. Um, so he uses that synthesis as a way to record molecular proximity. Um, so that actually inspired the PER method, which also uses a very similar hairpin type construct. Um, and so, you know, in general, we actually have a lot of work in the lab using this dynamic synthesis for a lot of different uh, types of recordings. So uh, for the PER paper, we showed how we can sort of record what signals are present or even like what order they're introduced in. And this is actually something that can be extended even further. Um, so there's a project in the lab trying to use PRs, for example, a ticker tape that can actually record information that happens, sort of events and information that happens over time into these growing strands of DNA. And what's nice about this, right, is that it's a, you can easily sequence the DNA strands you produce. So you, you can convert those records into sort of a digital format through sequencing. Um, and there's also other work that's using these types of cascades to record even more complex spatial configurations um, with the hope of ultimately, again, recording this information into sequenceable reads. So for this kind of temporal recording, what sort of timescales are we looking at? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it's all kind of based on strands interacting with each other. Um, so you can either imagine it as kind of a diffusive paradigm, in which case you might think about kind of the on rate of the molecule, which will depend on um, the concentration. So, uh, you know, that could be anywhere on the order of seconds to minutes or even longer, depending on what your concentration is. But there's also ways to do, uh, you know, the sort of surface localized experiments. So like the autocycling proximity recording I mentioned, you know, that's happening with molecules that are right next to each other. So their effective local concentration is quite high. Um, so that would probably, you know, that could be pretty fast, um, probably nothing like below a second uh, for any of the kind of things we're looking at recording, but we're thinking of recording things that happen on longer timescales. So like minutes to hours? Yeah. So presumably that would be really useful for recording uh, concentration changes over time, say in cells or similar? Yeah, concentration changes or configuration changes. You know, I, I think this is very aspirational and I think we're quite far from it, but it would be awesome if you could, for example, you know, attach a primer to like a ribosome, right? And then it could record like what RNAs are being, uh, you know, produced nearby or like what proteins are being uh, translated, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you could try to understand, you know, the, the temporal and the spatial dynamics um, via just sequencing of DNA records. Now, of course, we're very far from that um, at the moment, but I think that's, that's kind of the aspiration. Yeah, that's really cool. So. Yeah, like in that sense, in terms of more long-term versus short-term things, you've de you've developed technology like you know, Stabr for biological imaging that is useful in labs today um, and has really immediate uh, practical applications. How do you balance short-term goals with more long-term ones, maybe perhaps less immediately practical ones? Yeah, you know, I think that's uh, super tricky, and I think that's also you know, this aspect that you have these sort of theoretical aspirational goals, and then there's the sort of more immediate experimental goals is, uh, is one of the interesting dynamics in the molecular programming community as a whole. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to, 
the PI, the lab, the institute, and kind of what the established goals are. Um, so, you know, for example, here at the Beast, uh, we're a very translationally focused institute. Um, and Pong especially is very focused on these sort of practical applications. So we've been focusing a lot on using, you know, these, these uh, reactions, maybe the simplest form of them to do really useful practical things like imaging or even adapting them for diagnostics. Um, but, you know, I think that depends a lot, you know, on the lab um, and on the researcher as well. But for you personally, are you happy with the balance you've been having in terms of long term versus short term? Yeah, for me, I've been I've been very happy. You know, I came from a computer science background um, at Caltech. I took Eric Winfrey's uh, molecular computing class, an elective sort of computer science course, and that got really me really excited about the theoretical aspect. And then, you know, I was kind of debating what I wanted to go into in grad school, and it, that seemed like a good time for me to kind of switch gears and learn something new. So. You know, when I got to grad school, I sort of barely knew how to pipette, didn't really know that much more. Um, so that was a great opportunity for me personally to learn, you know, all of the basics of uh, sort of molecular biology protocols and like how to think about these in practical terms. And, you know, of course, like how to decide what to spend your money on, like what strands you want to order. You know, you want to try 100 things, but maybe you can only, you know, buy things for 10. So how do you decide like what's the most likely to work? So all of that kind of more experimentally rooted thinking is, is something that I've spent the last several years learning. Um, so I've really enjoyed that myself. So was Eric's, um, Eric's elective course the first exposure to the field or had you heard about molecular programming before then? Yeah, it's interesting. So I think that was my first like concrete exposure. Um, but of course, like I'd heard sort of from other students, like that the course was really cool and there were all kinds of like, you could solve like the traveling salesman problem or whatever with DNA strands. I was like, that's crazy. Um, so, you know, I'd heard about the class, I'd heard about some of the concepts, but I didn't really know what it was all about till I took the class. And so in that class, presumably, and your your background in Caltech, as you mentioned, was more on the computer science side and like with PR specifically, like you've shown that you can construct logic um, using PR. Have you, develop that further to uh, maybe go back to where you started and like see if you can build up bigger circuits and more like a DNA computing side to PR beyond the like more biological applications. Yeah, it's definitely something I've thought about. And I think other groups have also thought about kind of similar concepts. So one of the ways I like to kind of abstract away the, the reaction, right, is that it, we, if you think of the three prime domain, so the three prime end of your growing strand as the current state of that strand, um, and then the sequence you add represents like the next state, then you can think of a PER reaction as being an edge between two nodes from a current state to the next state. So you can imagine like the sort of set of PER reaction cascades you can program uh, can be sort of abstracted into these sort of nodes with different edges in between. So we're basically controlling, you know, what states can lead to what other states. And we can make those edges, those, those state changes conditional, for example, on different signals that are present, um, you know, or things that are happening in the solution. And so at a kind of more general level, you can think about both uh, the sort of set of uh, programs that you can write with this type of uh, node network, but also like what types of programs you can't solve. And there's a lot of computer science theory around that. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think, quite related to these uh, finite automata uh, that sort of are very simplistic, but they change state um, and you go between different states. 
And, you know, there's a certain amount of information that you can process and then some types of information that you you can't sort of process or or solve. Yeah, I was going to say that sounded um, quite reminiscent of finite autopsies. Have you been able to show that um, PER kind of is as computationally powerful as, as finite automata? Is it more or less? Um, what can you tell? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't have any like sort of proofs, but that's definitely how I sort of conceptualize it uh, in, my, in my head, right? And I think it's it's a nice way to think about it too, because it, it helps sort of motivate these recording applications, right? Because not only are, are we sort of having these, you know, billions of whatever little automata going around changing state based on their local environments, um, we're also recording all of those state changes into the growing strand of DNA. So if it goes from state A to state B, then back to A, then to state C, right? That's all encoded in a specific, you know, permutation of sequences uh, that we can then recover with sequencing. Um, so I think it's it's a fun way to think about what types of recording and what types of problems we can solve with those uh, those constructs. How noisy are the recordings and how, how feasible is it to actually extract like the, the fine-grained information that you've been describing? Yeah, I think that depends entirely, of course, on the application. Um, so I, I think the most challenging is the sort of temporal recording. And we've got a lot of collaborators um, and other people kind of leading that project, looking at the kind of math aspect of it. So how do you fit these times, right? If you think about the, you know, at the molecular level, right, it's a stochastic, uh, it's a stochastic random reaction, right? And so, you know, it has a certain rate, but if you look at an individual molecule, the actual number of sort of incorporations you might have over a specific set period of time, um, is random, but it follows a predictable distribution based on the rate. Um, and so you can use basically fancy math to kind of uh, back out, you know, deconvolute those signals. But I think that's probably the most uh, sort of challenging, especially because you're right, like there's also like all kinds of noise from other things that we don't think about. Um, so like, the, you know, if we, we think about it as a very simple reaction of like, you know, the hairpin and the primer come together and then they go to a state, right? But actually there's a polymerase involved and like, you know, what's the polymerase dynamics there? How fast is that binding? How often? Or even more simplistically, right? Like you have a polymerase that binds and the nucleotide has to be there and it has to be added. And this has to happen, you know, 10 times to add, you know, a single sequence domain. So that's actually like very uh, complex to model. But then for other things, so like the autocycling proximity recording uh, that Tom worked on, um, that's more, um, I guess, discrete. So, you know, you you get a record that says like this molecule was near this molecule. So, you, you know, you're not, you don't have to do quite as complicated of math. On the topic of challenges, um, what, do you remember any particularly difficult or challenging parts when you were coming up with the, the reaction or did it kind of uh, come fully formed into your head one, one night and, and you went from there? Yeah, you know, I think, so I actually got really lucky um, you know, with my colleagues. So I wasn't actually the one that invented PER. Um, so Tom, like I said, he worked on this APR reaction ahead that really pioneered this idea of a hairpin that can pattern the addition of a sequence domain. Uh, and then I think it was actually my colleague Fung and also my PI Pung who realized like, oh, if we uh, apply this concept of a toehold, so this idea that the strand could bind and then come back off and fall off, then like we might be able to cascade these together into even more those sort of larger circuits. And at the time I had just like officially joined Pung's group, but I was kind of exploring different project ideas. Um, 
and actually Pong came to me, he was like, hey, I'd like you to work on this. And I immediately, you know, sort of, I immediately got it. Right? I was like, oh, this is super exciting. This is like, you know, uh, a new, what we call molecular primitive, right? It's a very basic way to mutate information. We're exchanging one primer sequence for another. And like that could open up so many doors. So I was super excited to be able to work on that. Um, and then of course the challenge came of like, where do we start? How do we do it, right? Um, and so that was a lot of months of uh, optimizing, like how long should these sequences be? Uh, like, like what should they be? How should we implement uh, the stopper behavior? So part of the design of our hairpin, we have to have a molecule, like a modification that stops a polymerase so that the primer copies some sequences and then stops. And then we have a competing strand that displaces it back off. So we have to think about, okay, what kinds of chemical modifications can we use that actually uh, stop the polymerase? So the thing we kind of settled on for, for mostly applications initially is actually a three-letter code. So we include, for example, just the A, T, and C bases, and then uh, we exclude G. And then if we have a C base on the template of a strand, the polymerase gets there and it has nothing to pair with the C and then it stops. So that's actually turned out to be one of our most effective stoppers. Um, but, you know, there were lots of tricky things involved too. Um, so one of the things uh, sort of learned about empirically is that the polymerase we use, BST uh, large fragment, it has this A-tailing behavior. So when it reaches the end of a normally blunt end, it'll add a single A-base overhang on the end. Um, but it seems like this even happens in the context of our hairpins. Uh, so it adds an A base. So we found out that uh, the efficiency, like the sort of yield per reaction goes up a huge amount if you accommodate for that in the next step by always starting your next primer with an A. So that if it has A tailed in the previous step, uh, it can still bind and copy through the next hairpin sequence. So on, on balance, having done all this theoretical and experimental work, would you say that the more difficult part, well, which is the more difficult in your opinion, working out the experimental <laughs> issues or doing the theoretical side of it? I think they're just different, right? And I think um, they're different types of problems, different types of thinking, different types of approaches, right? Um, I think, you know, the, from a like cost perspective, I guess the experimental problems can be harder to solve in the sense of like, you know, if you're doing, a, if you're modeling something in silico on a computer, right, you could test like, I don't know, a thousand or a million conditions, right? And then, you know, when you're in, in the lab, usually that translates to like buying a thousand different sequences or running a thousand different reactions, right? Which either translates to cost of reagents or, or the cost and value of your time. Um, so it's a different, it's a different way to approach problem solving. So did you find the transition, like going from mostly a theoretical background to, well, immediately, presumably jumping into the experimental challenges as well? Uh, was that something that you found fun and invigorating? Or was it like more of an imposter syndrome type situation or a bit of both? So presumably that's relevant to a lot of people in our field because of just how interdisciplinary it is. You always find yourself in a case where you probably feel like you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I'd say it's definitely a bit of both. So and I think this is, brings me back to why I really like the molecular programming community is that I've been very fortunate to have uh, really great mentors, both on the sort of theoretical side and experimental side that have really supported me, sort of despite my like complete, um, you know, lack of experience in the particular field, right. Um, so after I took Eric's class, um, I realized that 
I was like molecular programming, like this is what I want to do with my life, you know, but I have like no experience, right? Um, and I was very fortunate that Niles Pierce actually uh, let me do some work in his lab. So that's where I, where I learned to like pipette um, and also like see how people approach the experimental problems. Um, and then um, somehow I was able to get into grad school um, and that was also very fortunate, right? And I think uh, Pong's group, but also a lot of groups, we have people from lots of different backgrounds. So like computer science, physics, math, chemistry, bioengineering, um, and people have generally been very supportive of, of teaching and sharing their experiences and the methods. Um, so I think, you know, I've been very lucky in that sense to have great mentors. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's something that I've always really liked about the molecular programming community, and I hope that can continue even you know, even though the molecular programming sort of project grant has ended. Yeah, I fully agree that it's like the community is just super friendly. And personally, I feel like it's just a lot of fun. And most people are doing it because it's fun. Um, yeah. But yeah, as you've been mentioning, like there are also a lot of really exciting practical applications, which can be huge drivers of things going forward. Definitely. Um, in that sense, do you, do, do you think that it's more of like, well, these are early-ish days for molecular programming and we're all having fun? Do you, what do you see going forward? Will the focus shift more towards uh, like developing technologies that can be you know, more real-world applications? Or do you think this more theoretical drive will stay on as well? Yeah, I think, um, I guess I keep saying this, I think both, but, um, you know, I, I think... Uh, what I hope to see going forward is like that kind of community expand, um, right? Like molecular programming isn't so much of like a specific set of methods or ideas, right? It's like really like an engineering approach and a way to think about biology and biological parts, you know, and how you can hack them, how you can put them together to do these crazy new things, right? And it's also about community, right? A group of people who have come together with this common sort of uh, vision of programming biology like computers, right? Um, so I guess going forward, I, I hope that actually, you know, the theoretical experimental work goes forward. I hope that we can also find ways to kind of bridge that gap and just kind of expand into new areas. I think one of the most exciting areas um, for me personally is seeing the DNA data storage stuff really take off. Um, you know, we have all these different ways to uh, to mutate, rewrite, exchange information, so to hold exchange reactions, um, like tile assembly, like primary exchange reactions, um, like other enzymatic and non-enzymatic cascades. Um, and then we already know that nucleic acids can store this insane amount of information, right? And so like seeing how we can put those ideas together to really have uh, not just write lots of information, but rewrite it. and and access, retrieve that information, I think is really cool. Yeah, did you see the um, announcement by, I think it was Western Digital, Twist, IDT, and Microsoft, um, where they're kind of fitting all this industrial money into developing that? What, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's awesome, right? Like, um, it takes money to make the sort of experimental practical aspects work. So, I mean, I think it's great to see those collaborations. Yeah, and speaking of like fun things in the field as well, like it probably wouldn't escape anybody's attention. Uh, like the really fun acronyms and names you, you your your lab tends to come up with for technologies you develop. Do you do that when you first start on a project, or after like, hey, this is going somewhere, we need to brainstorm a fun name, or like, is it just something organic? 
<laughs> well, surely what you do is first come up with the name and then you design the theory to fit it, right? Oh. <laughs> I think it, it's a bit of all of them, right? Um, so like PER, I think uh, Pong came up with that pretty early on. And I think it was, it really stuck because uh, you know, it really evokes this idea that you're exchanging information by swapping out primers. So you could think of, um, you know, toehold mediated strand displacement cascades. They use toehold exchange where they're swapping out these sort of different toeholds and different steps to the reaction. Or like, um, I often think of like the four-way um, branch migration as like a strand exchange reaction, right? So this this sort of fundamental idea that you're exchanging information in a single reaction and that, that you can sort of generalize and cascade together. Like, I think that was really, uh, really resonated with us. So that, that pretty much stuck from the beginning. Um, and then uh, Saver was a little bit different. So we, we had different, like, we were kind of calling it like PR amplification or, you know, amplifying the PR or whatever, right? And I like, I kind of had it in my head that I wanted to call it Saver because, um, you know, what, what we're doing is we're amplifying, you know, like fluorescent, like light signal, right? And so it's like light signal amplification by exchange reaction, like by primer exchange reaction. And then I was like, oh, well, obviously this should be lightsaber, right? Um, which we later shortened to saber. Um, so it was just, you know, you got to get the right timing of like getting all of your colleagues on board. Um, but people were generally pretty excited when, like, when I brought it up. So it really, it really pretty much stuck from there on. Yeah, I guess the concatenators are kind of like rod shaped as well in some senses, so, like just wobbling around. Yeah, exactly. Like, and it's li like, you're really like, you're, uh, you know, if you think about like, like lightsabers, right, you start with like, the handle or whatever, and then it like, it, it C2 grows the like fluorescent signal. So it's like, it's like perfect, right? Because I think it evokes like the kind of molecular mechanism almost. It is. Did you have to switch the name Saber because Disney threatened to sue you for fusing lightsaber? Well, I don't think they've caught wind of it yet. So, but... <laughs> Yeah, so it's okay if you're biased, but is lightsaber your favorite acronym in the field, or do you have some other favorites? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, I'd say I'm pretty biased on that front, but I feel like I'd have to look at like a comprehensive list because um, I think there's been some really great ones. Are there any other um, projects in the field that you're keeping an eye on and trying to see where that might go? Yeah. Um... So one one of the things that I've seen, like kind of another emerging trend, right, is using our ability, especially with like toehold exchange reactions, to uh, you know to specifically and very sensitively detect strands uh, being applied more towards things like diagnostics. So um, I've seen like Andy Ellington's lab um, and others have really started to um, to do a lot of very cool diagnostic work while applying these kind of uh, you know, arguably molecular programming type concepts. So I think um, that's also very exciting to see. Yeah, I guess like there has been an explosion in like diagnostics technologies these days in general. Do you, do you feel like that will affect things in the long term or um, like what will it bring people together working on diagnostics platforms or maybe increase competition in some senses? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I've I've seen a bit of both. Um, so we've been doing some di diagnostics work in the lab as well. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, there's so much innovation in molecular programming and concepts of like, what is like the theoretical limit of like, how specifically we could detect a strand, like one strand from another, and, you know, it comes down to like the thermodynamics of it. Um, 
And then, you know, really applying that in the practical sense of diagnostics, I think, um, I think is very exciting. Of course, like, I think diagnostics is fairly competitive because you're sort of competing on, like, you know, a few main fronts. So, like, cost, specificity, sensitivity, right? Um, so, you know, I think you'll inevitably have some competition, but I think there's still a ton of space uh, for innovation there. You've got all these uh, different applications and, and subfields. You've got diagnostics, assembly, storage, computation, so many different things. And I think we're really lucky that kind of we're still at the stage where we can all meet together in one place, well, virtually in one place now, um, and kind of get to hear all of these different sides and, and have it as a single session conference like at DNA. Do you think... Um, as our field hopefully grows and expands that we'll have to splinter off into different fields and we'll lose the cohesion or do you think we there's a way we can keep everyone together as as it gets more successful yeah i mean i think um i hope it'll expand you know i hope we can keep the dna conference and you know f nano um because i think they are great opportunities to bring people together um, who have this vision of, you know, programming molecules, right? And um, that's something, of course, I've always loved is that the theoretical people are always willing to talk about their work and try to explain the experimental um, and vice versa, right? And there's really this openness of communication and a, mostly a lack of competition, um, you know, because the, the field is, you know, so new and there's so much space for innovation. It's not like people are like competing um, you know, in like other fields, right, you might be like competing to get like the highest resolution or the most number of targets or something specific like that. But molecular programming, right, it's like you have so much rich innovation that happens in so many directions to go, you're not really competing. Um, but yeah, I absolutely hope those conferences can continue and also that, you know, we can sort of um, expand to other fields, right? I think, you know, there's a lot of overlap, of course, with like synthetic biology. Um, and so, you know, like maybe communicating more and moving more in that field, right? And like sort of adapting these concepts of computer science, uh, you know, which we already see a ton of, right? In synthetic biology and really opening up those communities and communication between those, I think um, would be very valuable. What do you think might be the most exciting bridge between DNA computing and synthetic biology? Where do you think the killer application for that is? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm like trying to think of, I mean, there's all kinds of things you can imagine, right? I guess I think of like synthetic bio as like, you know, specifically programming systems in like living cells, living systems, or like some kind of life-like system. So of course, like from that front, like being able to like create life or whatever, maybe that's too aspirational, but you know, like create a system that actually like, you know, maybe like, thinks like a brain or something, right? That like employs these neural networks or like that can, um, you know, interface with biology or of course, like if there were any applications in like human health, like can you make these like smart therapeutics? Um, like, you know, you see a lot of work, um, people are like engineering microbes that could like go in your gut and like fight off like bad pathogens or something, right? So like really expanding that to like, oh, well, what if you could like just record everything and then just fix everything on the spot like all that kind of stuff i think is really awesome do you have a sort of a more longer term vision in that sense in terms of where you'd like to get involved because you said you want like continue working on molecular programming yeah i mean i've so far managed to stay away from the in vivo stuff um which is you know there's sort of like um you know in vitro 
or like, I guess maybe you even start with like in silico something like will always work and then you go in vitro and then like there's all kinds of weird bugs and like debugging that has to be done to like get it to work and then like it's a whole nother ball game to go um, in situ so like the imaging stuff in like cells and tissues and then like I don't know in vivo is like just way out like way far from there um so I think for the near term I'm I personally am not planning to go in the in vivo stuff um but I think I've really enjoyed uh learning about these kind of in situ methods of like how do we uh how do we image and record information about molecules in biology and like can we use that to to study biology and then ultimately you know reprogram it based on sort of what we learn about what biomarkers are important for disease or uh, or you know whatever right um so personally, I think I probably will stay pretty squarely in that in situ space, um, try to develop tools, you know, based on different molecular programming aspects that can be generalized for studying biology with the ultimate goal of like improving it. And I guess when you move to in vivo, you need to contend with not only in silico bugs, but real bugs as well that are interfering. Yep. What's the craziest idea you've you've ever had with molecular programming? Yeah, I guess I probably like these molecular recording applications um, are, are like pretty out there. I think they're maybe not the most aspirational, but they're the most sort of like concrete um, sort of future goals, right? Like we have we have sort of the basics of the like physics and stuff working that we we think we could get there, but we're you know we're definitely not there. By any means, yeah. Um, you've had like a really interesting and uh, successful journey in molecular programming so far. Do you have any advice for uh, emerging early career people in, in the field? Anything you would have done differently or anything to suggest? Yeah, I think in terms of advice, um, let's say like try to read a bunch of papers, uh, you know, put yourself out there, even if you have no idea what, what the heck you're doing. Um, and you know, don't think you can do it. You absolutely can do it. And like, try to find a good mentor. Um, I think that was really key for me, right? Uh, having these mentors at Caltech that really supported my vision, um, sort of despite like a complete lack of experience. Um, I'm also really excited. I've heard some of the folks at Caltech are make are going to make a an art of molecular programming textbook, um, and I think that will be really awesome as a kind of primer, I guess, to to the field, um, and hopefully that'll make the the content more accessible. Because um, I think you know there are still a lot of concepts that are quite esoteric, and it can be hard to really kind of get into the community. So I think um, you know having that textbook will be great. And then yeah, I think the big thing is try to find good mentors. Maybe try to do uh, if if you're a college student or or even a high school student, you know, try to do research over the summer. Um, and just try to like talk to people and meet meet them, talk about ideas. Yeah, that, um, we're all really excited about the art of molecular programming because you basically have to be an engineer and a physicist and a computer scientist and a biochemist and, and all of these things. Um, which which would you say was the most challenging for you to get into um, looking back? Yeah, um, I guess for me it was definitely like uh, experiments like the experimental side because um, I just had basically no background in that um, you know I pretty much right up until junior year when I took the elective course from Eric like I'd been planning to go into software engineering um, so I think doing that transition was um, challenging but 
on the other hand, I'm not doing in vivo work. So I guess it's not, not as hard as it could have been. Do you regret not going into software engineering and getting the Silicon Valley salaries that would come with it? Oh, not at all. Yeah. Um, I think like, you know, it's interesting because I did, I applied for software engineering jobs at the same time as grad school. Um, and so I really like sat there and thought about it, but I think, you know, molecular programming, it's like, it's just so exciting. And it, it's like a totally different way to sort of think about computing. And, you know, I was just excited to just have this opportunity to work in it. Were there any big culture shocks when you went from uh, uh, West Coast to East Coast? Have you noticed any big differences between how people work? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, kind of everything you might expect. Like the, um, I feel like people are a little bit more like serious here. I don't know, maybe that's just my like institute because we're very translationally focused. Um, but I think there's like, we definitely focus a lot more on like, okay, what is the like practical application of this technology and how will we get there? What are the milestones and like how much will it cost? Um, and I mean, that's also very like lab dependent, institute dependent. Um, yeah. And how did you find the difference between undergrad, uh, postgrad, and now postdoc? Yeah, let's see. So undergrad, um, yeah, again, I was very focused on like CS. Um, so it wasn't until like kind of the very end that I was like, oh, actually, I'm going to go to grad school, right? But um, I think, uh, so in grad school, I was in, I'm in uh, Peng Yin's department, so I was in uh, systems biology. Um, so that was uh, that was actually very interesting because systems biology, kind of like molecular programming, right, brings together a lot of people from different fields. Um, in, in the case of systems biology, you're trying to think about biology, you know, from a sort of stepped back position where you want to think about it as a whole and how all the different parts sort of interact with each other, which is actually like very similar to molecular programming, except you're, you're in most cases you're studying it, not reprogramming it. Um, so I think that was really awesome for me to sort of be exposed to this other community too, um, and see how like people like that think as well. Um, and then, you know, it depends a lot on your grad program of like how many classes you have to take and stuff, but I was actually lucky that we only had to take, I think four classes for kind of like the whole time and then TA one class. Um, and so that left a lot of open time for for research which i think was really uh really valuable because then i you know basically i could just hit the ground running um you know once i joined the lab and uh yeah in my case you know i'm still here after grad school stayed on as a postdoc and i now tech dev fellow so obviously i've really liked it um and my day-to-day -day has been i guess largely the same i mean lots of experiments i've definitely taken a bit more of a um sort of business development uh, kind of spin on things because I'm really interested in trying to spin out some some work. So I think, uh, but in terms of the day-to-day, -day, you know, I come to lab, I do experiments, I think about problems and I try, you know, try to execute and debug mostly, so. Do you still mostly have control over your own time or are you starting to have to think about spending 20% more of your time on grant writing and, and admin? Uh, how's the balance been for you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it kind of depends on the time of year and stuff. So, um, you know, I, I was lucky to have a chance to work on a bunch of grants um, in the past. So that was pretty cool to, you know, to kind of think about how do you write up these ideas in a way that like convinces people that it's important enough to spend usually like taxpayer money on, right? 
Um, and then more recently, since I'm really focused on spinning out some work, uh, I've kind of switched to focusing on things like, you know, working on our IP portfolio um, and trying to like reach out to like investors and stuff. So, you know, I think uh, it's always challenging to balance your time between the kind of, you know, the BD, the grant writing, or like thesis writing, and then doing the actual experiments. So I think that's always um, kind of like a daily challenge. So I, you know, I try to approach each day and think about, okay, what can I actually accomplish like the day of them, like kind of go from there. Did working on the BD side of things, did that come to you as a surprise or were you kind of expecting that from early on? Yeah, I think, um, so the Visa Institute has a, a dedicated business development team. So we've got um, like BD directors and leads um, and also like lawyers that help us with, uh, you know, filing patents and things. Um, so that's always been kind of a part of the the work we've been doing in the lab. Um, so that's been really great to have that as a resource. Um, and, you know, part of that comes with this idea that we're a translational institute that really focuses on getting these texts out there. Um, and then, uh, you know, similarly, they've been extremely helpful in helping us, like, prepare pitch decks and, like, uh, you know, reach out to people in, in different networks to to talk to them about our ideas. So. Um, I think that, yeah, I think that's been an incredibly valuable resource uh, to have. What do you think the uh, most imminent commercial application of PR or, or Sabre might be? Or is that still all under wraps? Um, I think it's still a little bit under wraps, but I, you know, I think, um, you know, with imaging, right, there's, uh, you know, there's always this need to, to study not just what molecules are in a sample, but where they are, right, because this can tell you a lot about what's going on. So you could imagine like having, you know, if you have a tumor sample, you could look at how gene expression changes across, right? And try to understand like how it developed in the first place and like, you know, what's going on at the, the molecular level. So I, you know, I think, um, and you know, what makes the amplification really helpful is that if you sort of increase the signal by like a hundred fold, right? You can reduce the exposure time. So the amount of time it takes to image a region you know, by a similar amount, so like a hundredfold, right? So if you can image a hundred times faster, um, then you can image like a much larger tissue area in the same amount of time. Um, and so I think those applications where you're really trying to, uh, again, you know, sort of create these like large atlases, molecular atlases of tissues, I think are very, uh, are very important. Do you think there are any big bottlenecks in, in the field um, that are kind of making it, difficult to progress and and if so what do you think might be the best ways to solve them um i think you know i think uh one of the things i'd like to see right is sort of the community grow and become more accessible so i think um like one of the things that i've found very helpful sort of when learning about like tile assembly and stuff is like there's software packages that like help you visualize what's going on so a lot of this um sort of communications work where you try to really like explain or visualize, you know, or animate a process, I think, you know, are extremely uh, helpful in, in kind of getting those concepts out there. Um, so I think like one of the things that I've been trying to think about is like, okay, how can I like make like an animation or a video that shows like what we're trying to do, even though it's actually, you know, it might be kind of abstract, but there must be a way to like show it in a way that, you know, anyone could understand it. Um, so like thinking, really hard about how we communicate the science, I think is important. 
Yeah, I remember the animations. I think they were DNA 23 and DNA 25. Did you make those animations? Oh, yeah. So I made some of them. And then we also actually have a dedicated animator um, at the Vs who made like the really fancy ones with like the dark backgrounds and the, the like wiggly primers and stuff. Um, so she put all those together, which was awesome. Because, you know, having that as a tool to explain what's going on. You know, they say like a picture is worth a thousand words, but I, you know, I think an animation is worth you know, even more than that, right? Depends on the frame rate. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Josie. We had a great time talking to you and hearing all of your thoughts about the field and, and where you think it's going to go. And um, yeah, I, I hope all of these come true. Um, stay tuned for our talk with Yuan Jue Chen in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks for listening.